Since 1931, Financial Executives International has been the leading advocate for the views of corporate financial management. Its more than 10,000 members hold policy-making positions as chief financial officers, chief accounting officers, controllers and treasurers at companies from every major industry. And FEI enhances its members' professional development through peer networking, career management services, conferences, research, and publications. Join FEI today to network with key influencers, understand emerging issues, advocate for corporate finance, and boost your career opportunities. Both individual and corporate membership options are available. Go to www.financialexecutives.org and click on Become a Member, or look for the link in this episode's show notes. This is Chris Westfall, and this is the FAI Weekly Podcast. As the U.S. settles into its traditional Thanksgiving holiday meal, it should be remembered that a majority of the globe remains in a constant state of food insecurity. According to the USDA, a combination of the lingering effects of the coronavirus pandemic and risks associated with the ongoing Russian military invasion of Ukraine are fueling the problems. But developed nations are not immune, with the UK experiencing its own crisis as food prices are rising and trade agreements with overseas partners are failing. In this episode, we speak to Dr. Lisa Jack, Professor of Accounting in the Faculty of Business and Law at the University of Portsmouth in the UK. Dr. Jack is one of the few accounting researchers to examine the agri-food industry and the effects of accounting and performance measurement practices on the industry and on society more widely. Yeah, Professor Jack, thanks for joining us today. Um, really uh, interesting discussion that we have ahead of us about your work around accounting and tying that to the um, agri-food industry and, and understanding those processes. Perhaps we could start a little a bit about your focus on accounting as an accounting professor and researcher in, on the agriculture and food industry. What brought you to that specific focus Thank you. Um, well, I didn't start out as an academic. I was actually a qualified accountant, um, an auditor for about 10 years following graduation. But after that time, I began to feel that I'd rather be teaching. And so I went first doing some part-time teaching and then became a full-time teacher, which led me to working in an agricultural college at one point. Um, this is a college in Essex in the UK called Rittle. Um, and I got interested, although I was teaching conventional accounting for some of the courses, and I got involved in some of the courses that they were doing for land managers and for agricultural engineers and in agriculture. And I became intrigued by the fact that what was being taught was different. It was different between the conventional accounting courses and those in the agri, more specifically in the agri-food industry. This actually led to me taking on a PhD um, in midlife to examine um, why these practices were different. Um, 
it turned into a sort of social historic study um, that led all, me all the way back to the 1947 Agricultural Act in the UK, in which there was a surprising amount of counting practice. With long story short, um, following my PhD, I moved institutions. And since then, about the last 20 years, I've been researching the food industry from farm to fork, um, with a particular view as an accounting professor. That's very interesting. Yeah, I, I, I never, uh, as I said before, when we we, we had uh, conversed over email, I, I hadn't come across the specific focus around accounting and food. But maybe maybe you could sort of describe. Um, you, you talked a little bit about the the differences uh, in what you saw in the accounting practices. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the accounting norms and practices in the in the food industry that differs from other industries. Certainly, and of course I'm talking from a UK perspective, but I have done work in um, North America, Australasia, in fact in a number of countries. Um, so I've been able to see that some of the practices have um, spread, if you like. And one of the key things is that there's an emphasis on marginal costing. This is quite an interesting history in that agricultural economists were very keen at finding, if you like, the best mix on farms that would um, produce a marginal profit, you know, so that you would, what did you have to plant, for example, that would give you that extra dollar or more on your income? But it's also sort of became sort of twisted. And I think what this then led into in many, particularly supermarket-led systems, is an emphasis on, well, okay, somebody else is covering the overhead costs. We only need to negotiate on your direct or your variable costs. Of course, this leads to a problem, which is who's going to cover those overhead costs in the business? And I think, although you see this in a number of industries, it's particularly acute in the agri-food industry. I've described it in a recent paper in a very basic way, which is the whole industry, even the charitable side of it, relies on somebody else giving you a discount. And even the performance measures are on how well you get those discounts. And if you want one reason why the system as a whole is more fragile than we would like it to be. It's simply that. Um, rather than all overheads being covered in every negotiation over cost, what we tend to find is people are juggling cash flow to meet their overheads. So one side of it I'm very interested in is how people use the accounting when they're negotiating prices and why that creates a downward squeeze on the farmers and growers. Another, obviously, if you're then looking at the policy side, you're more interested in, well, a full cost, a full cost plus situation. But I've never actually seen that happening outside a policy document. So we have this one problem, everything's based on getting those, mar you know, tight margins. 
again, as I said, it's not unique to the food industry, but it causes particular problems in the food industry. I think another side is that, um, again, not unique, but what we see a lot, particularly in supermarket systems, is an emphasis on what's variously called commercial income or back margin or suppliers' payments. Everybody's trying to get paid for their expertise along the line. But it becomes particularly interesting when you start analysing the income and profits of supermarkets and realising the extent to which they rely on getting this commercial income and getting the discounts. Quite simply, if they weren't able to take those from the other players in the supply chain, uh, they would not be making any profit at all. There's a supermarket in the UK that recently was sold into private equity. And this is a company called Morrison's. Particularly transparent about the amount of commercial income they took. But in the year before they were bought, their commercial income as a figure exceeded their net income. So by deduction, without it, they would have been making a loss. So, and that's quite an important point because most people don't realise this. It leads to lots of discussion amongst consumers about there being price gouging, right. for example, markets. What they don't tend to realise that, in fact, the suppliers are paying for more of that profit than the consumers are. It's quite a counterintuitive thing to get your mind around. Um, and I don't think even I've got to the bottom of that one yet. But those two things in particular, combined with a lack of transparency, particularly in the middle of the supply chain with your big manufacturers, processors and distributors, are some of the factors that make it quite an interesting area to study. Maybe you could give me an example uh, that you see in the market that these sort of distortion, th does it create distortions in the market that, um, you know, either consumers or investors don't have a real insight into and, and how do you overcome that or can it be overcome? Well, that's the big question. Can it be overcome? So I think some of the distortions you see is more in the way that people discuss who's getting you know, who's profiting in the system. And there's quite an interesting one. Again, it comes down to some basic accounting, which is how you classify your overheads. Um, so a supermarket, to stick with that, um, would probably say anything that goes into running a store and getting the food to the shelf and to the consumer is a direct cost. It's not an overhead. So they classify about 90% of their costs as direct costs. Farmers tend to take a more traditional approach and they'll just go for the, you know, the seed, the labor, um, sprays and fertilizers, those sorts of direct inputs. So their direct costs are only about 30% and the rest is counted as overhead. In the middle, you get variations on that. Um, the more manufacturing companies, probably the split's about 50-50. What it means is that people aren't arguing on the same playing field. You know, if you're arguing, I've got to cover my, you know, 
you only need to take a marginal cost. But in one case, that means 90% of your costs, and in the other case, it means 30%. It creates a distortion in the negotiations, I think. And, you know, this is, it's taken me a while to extract that from the publicly available information. I think also it's distorted as well because quite a lot of the companies in the middle um, do other things. So, for example, one company I was trying to analyse, um, they're one of the biggest suppliers of bread in the UK, sliced bread, but they also run one of the biggest clothing companies in the UK. If you look at their financial accounts, it's the aggregation of both those activities. It's very difficult to get transparency on what the food side is actually doing. So I think there are those distortions in when it comes to it, who can pay for what in the industry. And does that go some way to answering yeah, your question? No, I mean, given the context of what you're describing, that's a, that makes perfect sense. One question I had was, um, in other markets uh, and other where there are accounting practices that um, I guess either um, investors or consumers or wh whoever the stakeholders are don't see transparency or, or feel they're um, not disconnected from the fundamental economics of, of the business. They usually go for or or there's still there's a regulatory system or standardization around the accounting practices. Is that something that has ever been discussed in, in these in, in this world? Have they ever thought about standardizing the, the accounting practices for food and agriculture? It's certainly been discussed, but more from the farm end and certainly on the farming side, it's far more standardized because there are national surveys, farm income. It probably doesn't work in the favor of the farmers. If we're talking about the agri-food businesses, um, by which I mean you know, those in the, the intermediaries, the processors and others, the supplies of fertilizers, the supermarkets, they do there aren't special rules. They they do follow standard accounting practice either under the international financial reporting standards or under the FASB rules. What we tend to find is that they um, let's take for an example segment reporting. Under segment reporting, and now I'm going to just quote IFRS. <laughs> <laughs> I never say that before. IFRS yes. eight. <laughs> um, you know, you have a choice. After a lot of lobbying, there was a choice about how you put your segments. What I find in some of the companies is you'll find they've got fuel and everything else, and that's how it's segmented, or it's segmented geographically. So following the rules, but you're not getting the transparency. And I think if any pressure could be put, and I, this is one of the things I've called for in a couple of the reports I've written, it's not very popular, but I've called for it, is that actually we should have more transparency on the segmental analysis so that you could go in, say, to the company I mentioned and know what they made from clothing, what they made from food, what they made from their other activities, as opposed to 
what they made in Europe, what they made in North America, and what they made in the Far East. So I think there have been pressures for that, but it hasn't got very far so far. I think also the one that has been more successful is the disclosure of commercial income. This has been under certain American legislation, and you have to forgive me for not co quoting name and page. Um, is that there, you know, there's more disclosure uh, somewhere buried in the notes at the back, usually, of um, what the companies receive in commercial income. In the UK, it's voluntary as a disclosure, and a number of the supermarkets have taken it on. To get the detail, you tend to be in about note 21, 22 at the back of the financial report. But they are either disclosing what they're owed by suppliers at the end of the year, or they're disclosing their total commercial income, and now breaking it down into volume discounts and marketing fees. This was, but this was actually under some pressure because we did have a scandal in the UK, where one of our major supermarkets um, anticipated their income, shall we say, and we're taking the money in advance in June, accounting for it in advance with it being due, and then when the market's changed, realised that they had quite a significant hole. Now, this was shown to be poor accounting rather than an active fraud, and that's been shown to fraud. But that really put pressure on the companies to be more transparent about this side of their business. But still, it's a surprise to most people. And I have to say, well, I know because I read the accounts backwards. <laughs> I start with the Right, new. right. <laughs> um, one, one thing I'd like to ask, and, and this is sort of where my head is at with uh, food, you know, agri-food accounting and, and, and its current state is, there, there, there's a number of conflicts going on uh, in the world. You know, you can look at Ukraine and, and, and the grain conflict, and you look at, well, now Israel. Um, there are different um, issues around that. But, you know, from your perspective, and I know you've, you've done work around the, the food chain and, and accounting in that, how is this, these, or how are these conflicts impacting the food chain? And, and what role does accounting have in sort of measuring those effects? It's a very good question. I mean, we have seen a change in obviously food prices. Mm -hmm. I asked to comment on this recently. It's too early to say what the appalling conflict in Israel is going to have, although we do, Israelis obviously and Palestine are major exporters of fruits for example. The Ukraine conflict obviously has had a huge impact, not just because of the seeds for oil and the flour that have been taken out of the system, but also because of the effect on fuel prices. And I think it's becoming clear to people, or clearer to people, not so much about the wheat, but just how much fuel prices drive our agricultural systems these days. You think about it, the whole move in the 20th century was towards mechanization, 
you know, so from the point we have greenhouses growing with seeds and seedlings right the way through to all those tractors, the storage, the harvest, <clears throat> right the way through to the distribution, refrigeration, processing, um, the use of fuel in plastic packaging. I mean, it, the list is endless. It's not really a surprise that um, food prices go up when fuel prices go up. And I think, again, we come back to the transparency, it's actually getting a handle on that, both from a cost accounting point of view and from just a sort of communication point of view to the public. Yeah, just how much fuel has driven the price of food and how much we're dependent on fuel to run our system. If you think about it, the chemicals for fertilizers and the, and the byproducts that are used all come from fossil fuels. You know, that's going to, I think, lead on to another question, but just trying to break down how much of the cost of food, for example, is related to the cost of fuel, I think would be a very interesting exercise. I think it needs to be done. There's so many elements in it. I was trying to explain it, for example, to um, some older people who were saying, well, how could the price of basic soda go up? <laughs> it's water and something, isn't it? I said, well, it's in the plastic bottle and it's two. The CO2 and the plastic bottle have both gone up in price. We can argue about whether there's price gouging, but quite frankly, the two most expensive elements of the cheapest pop have just gone up in price. So we have that problem. And I think we haven't really got around to that accounting, that granular accounting for fuel in the system. Has a project probably waiting to be done. Have you seen anyone or any regulators um, go in that direction as far as, you know, adapting the accounting to these price input changes or even from a, a company disclosure perspective? Has there been a shift in focus at all? I think people have been putting out, you know, a defense. Um, but I haven't yet seen, and it may yet be too early, because obviously we're still waiting for, if you like, the financial statements to come mm -hmm. through. But I think we are seeing it. But I'm not, I think people are very wary, because, again, I think one of the things I may, maybe should have mentioned is this high level of commercial sensitivity that is said to surround everything in the food industry. So people don't want to break down too far these costs and make them public because then people will start, you know, involves them in too many awkward conversations. It may be giving away commercially sensitive accounting information. And therefore we're caught in this bind. We need to know these numbers. We need to know whether you've replaced the wheat that you would have got from Ukraine with another source and what the additional cost is. But the trouble is, if you're, say, manufacturing bread, you're probably getting your wheat from a number of different sources. Mm. And maybe you've got a better deal with one than you've got with the other. Right. You don't want that granular detail to come out. And it's also why you know, people are wary, say, about some of the blockchain technologies for traceability. Right. Is they're fine, but they don't want any financial information in there. And so 
It's been talked about as an academic and a policy level. There are certainly narrative disclosures around the area, but I think people are very, very wary of making any detailed financial disclosures because of the commercial sensitivity that surrounds every single negotiation in the agri-food industry. And thinking about it, maybe that's what I should have led off with. One of the big characteristics of the industry is just how commercially sensitive data is held to be. Yeah, that's interesting. I want to follow up on that. I mean, what's driving that commercial sensitivity? Is it strictly uh, a competitive issue in negotiation of, of, of sources and contracts? Is it um, a consumer issue? They don't necessarily want to uh, reveal the sourcing of all the different uh, inputs into their uh, into the food chain. I mean, what it, is it what's driving that competitive issue? Probably an element of both. I think it's more the you know, like business to business side. My impression. It's because you know you do have competitors. There's not many foodstuffs where you don't have a competitor. Also, as I've just alluded to, you probably have more than one supplier, so you can't rely on one supplier. Say, all chocolate chips. Just to give an example will have three or four places you're getting that supply from and you don't particularly want that to um you don't particularly don't want one of your suppliers to know what you're doing with another if you've managed to strike a particularly good deal with one um, or you're paying another one a little bit more you don't want to find out somebody else is getting a little bit more also you don't want your competitors who are making the same products to know how you manage to achieve a lower price, for example, or how you get away with charging a premium, unless you want to say, you know, genuine Madagascan vanilla or Sicilian lemons or I'm not sure, um, some South American um, produce that you want to make it clear that you're, you've got a right to charge that premium price. So there's a, you know, this is very tightly embedded in the industry that you don't give away this information. And you know, people are contractually bound not to give away the information or what they've managed to negotiate in the way of commercial income. It does make it very difficult for the rest of us to have transparency completely over what's happening. And, and even the information I've got is under NDA, so I can't tell anybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, does that, um, I mean, that opaqueness, I guess, um, put it, to give it a phrase, um, especially in an inflationary environment where um, consumers are seeing prices rise in some places exponentially, um, at some point, do the producers feel they have to give some sort of more detailed information, or is that just not a dynamic in the marketplace right now? I think they have to do. I mean, I, there has been some. I mean, you can point to commodity prices, which are which are publicly available. You know, you can see certain of those in the newspapers. So commodity people can see the changes in commodity prices. 
and you can point very easily to the cost of fuel. And have been obviously, I've seen recently people on um, news bulletins and others defending the fact that food prices are still high because they're, as they explain, buying that fuel and buying the commodities on six month forward contracts, for example. And therefore they're locked into certain prices or they've had to pay for the fuel in advance to put it at its simplest. So there's also this other layer um, that uh, Professor Jennifer Clapp is particularly written about in the US about the role of the financial markets as opposed to accounting in the industry. And, you know, I think you could, that would be a whole podcast <laughs> on its own. I'm sure. Um, so there is, you know, there are some explanations, but again, I'm finding general explanations pointing to publicly available information. I'm not seeing detail, any detailed breakdown of numbers in those public communications. And therefore, obviously, you open yourself up to the risk now of accusations of profiteering right. or price. Um, so we most of it's been in response to those allegations. And I can't speak for the US, I've been following the news. But certainly in the UK, there's not too much concrete evidence of that. Um, if anything, the profits are coming down a little rather than going up. But again, in the popular mind, it's um, and quite rightly, it's what what's most obvious is that the supermarkets are profiteering from the cost of living crisis. Um, yeah. Whereas, in fact, most of the big supermarkets are selling far more than food. They're selling fuel, clothing, household goods. In fact, it's been known for a long time, ever since supermarkets established themselves in the States in the 1930s. Um, really, you don't make the profit from food. You make it from other things you sell to mm. consumers. Um, that's another. Yeah, it's a whole other discussion <laughs> and the economic theory. One thing I want to ask is, um, and this gets into sort of what you're describing into the entire um, how the food chain works and, and the accounting. And like I said that sometimes the opaqueness the of it, um, you've, you've done a lot of work uh, on, on food fraud uh, and, the and the accounting practices around that. In what ways? You know, is is you know the certain practices of forensic accounting are are they incorporated in in in, in figuring out food fraud practices? Maybe you can talk a little bit about like what food fraud is and and its its role in the industry. Okay, this is something that's really come to light in the last decade. I mean, it's been there for thousands of years ever since somebody tried to sell food to somebody else. Um. But there was a sort of perception that all the regulations in the 19th century had put an end to a certain amount of adulteration of food and mis-selling of weights and measures. So food fraud is also known as economically motivated adulteration. Essentially, it's anything you do with food, um, to part, such as um, mislabeling or substituting ingredients, or even adulterating or counterfeiting the foods. Um, 
you know, passing something on is what it's not. You know, um, obviously we had the big, big story in around 2013-14 in the UK of having horse meat in products labelled as beef. And that really accelerated an interest or an awareness that food fraud was still a 21st century problem. And if anything, it's probably growing with the pressures on food. It ranges from opportunistic fraud, and it may be, say, a company just needs to get through and can't get the usual ingredient and substitutes it with another, which may not quite be the same quality. It becomes a problem if you say substitute almond flour with peanut flour because it will affect people with allergies. But on the whole, because people are trying to make a profit, they're not trying to make people ill. So anything from watering down products, um, plumping up shrimp with water or gel. There's, I won't, hopefully people aren't eating while they're listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> But the accounting side is quite interesting because it is, you do it for profit. Right. That's why financial crime for profit. And therefore, there's always a money trail. So what's quite interesting is that some of the food fraud teams in Europe actually employ full-time forensic accountants. Or perhaps the more properly called forensic auditors. What you're trying to do is follow the, ch the chain, um, which might involve money laundering. It gets quite complicated, but, you know, the cases that do get to court, which aren't always the strongest players, quite often you'll find it's an invoice. Certainly the food board one, turned, they dug down and dug down and got back to the invoices and realised that the point in the supply chain where the horse meat had transmuted into being beef on the invoices. So... There is a role there in just sort of following the money and establishing the guilt um, when you can catch people. But, you know, there's not a great awareness yet of food fraud. Um, again, there's a reputational risk for companies to disclose it. Um, it's more likely to be settled, I think, as a matter between businesses. You have a risk that we believe there's some element of organised crime, but some of it's systemic. So I think the key role of forensics is in forensic auditing, in finding that, um, following the money, finding the trail. But also there's another side, which is an important part of the forensic accounting um, discipline, if you like, which is advising on counter-fraud or fraud. So it's advising, well, what management controls do you need in place? What checks and balances should you be doing? There's a very simple mechanism that's used in a lot of the food industry called a mass balance exercise. Which is, so I'll give you my favourite example. Um, our equivalent of Usda, um, Defra, <laughs> did some work and found out there was more goat's cheese being sold in the UK than there is actually goats in <laughs> Europe to produce, produce goat's cheese. 
So essentially, they did a mass balance exercise, how much milk is being produced, how much cheese is being sold. And they found out that, so they did some tests and found out that some of the goat's cheese was in fact cut with milk or cows, which would be fine if they told you. But this is my favorite story, is because a number of friends of mine had said to me in the sort of period around this time, and said, you know, I didn't used to like goat's cheese, but it's a lot more palatable. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's one of the ironies of food fraud. Is that I also believe that the end of the 19th century, when they stopped people um, cutting coffee with other adulterant ingredients, and people didn't like the taste of coffee. <laughs> there is a humorous yes. side to it. Um, but... People are making money, they're laundering money, these are food crimes. And in fact, if, you, if I may, I'd just like to drop in, I've been leading a team from the University of Portsmouth um, with um, discerners in the US and the University of Swansea. We've actually managed to put a figure, thanks to my colleagues um, in economics and in technology, we've managed to put a figure on the cost of, the cost, the cost of food crime to the UK estimate the upper end being around could be as much as two billion pounds per year and that's taking into account the obviously judiciary costs the market impact costs victim costs health costs um and one other um so you know breaking it down into then you can use the accounting side if you like to estimate well, just, you know, if there's a case of food fraud, if you do all the investigation, you send somebody to prison and you also look at the potential for health effects on people. Now, as I said, if you're a good food fraudster, you're not going to be, want to be poisoning people. That's a good way of getting caught. But you've got to think if people on the whole are eating food that's less nutritious than they thought it was, there probably will be long-term health impacts. So there is this economic cost involved in food crime was actually quite significant um, and it justifies actually having those teams dedicated to looking at food crime um, in the UK we've got the National Food Crime Unit um, in Denmark they've got the wonderfully named Food Flying Squad which is part of the um, veterinary services but they do employ forensic accountants to get into where the money went, but also then estimate well, just the accounting side, what is it costing us? And it has a cost to people in the industry as well, because if somebody can undercut you because they've been substituting with cheaper ingredients or avoiding tax or adulterating food, say, or mislabeling it, then you've got an unfair competitive advantage. And again, you know, doing the basic financial ratio analysis to see who's actually managing to profit when, say, there's a shortage of a particular item, but somebody's managing still to make the same or more profit than maybe we should be looking at um, what they're actually selling. And there has been work done around this in more detail by Dr. John Spink from University of Michigan and um, by people in Europe, researchers in Europe who've been looking at 
the involvement of the mafia in olive oil and the profits that are made there. And some of the cases that have been turned up where your extra virgin olive oil really is a bit older than right, it should right. be. If it's even not soy oil with green colour mm. in it. Is it always... Uh, I was going to ask, is it always going to be a sort of um, food fraud? And, and, and I, you mentioned a little bit about management controls. And I know, I mean, from my cursory understanding of it, you know, internal controls, management controls were put in place to sort of like um, prevent fraud before it becomes endemic or before it, the thinking before, catch it before it becomes an issue. Is it is food fraud always going to be sort of a post facto uh, forensic exercise, or is there a role for any sort of like growing management or internal controls around it? There is a role for more internal controls it's, um, and management controls. If we take management controls as being the um, sort of higher level monitoring and evaluation and policy making, the internal controls being more the checks and balances on an everyday level. You do need that in place. Now, the food industry actually, ironically, is probably better placed than some because you know, there is diagnostic testing. It's just we can't afford to test everything. Um, there are border controls, but again, do we have enough border controls to catch everyone? Um, the biggest problem is getting the police involved. You know, are they going to investigate a cruise fraud or are they going to investigate right. murder? You know, do they have the budget to do? But there is a role because, and some of it's not so much about number crunching. And um, some of it is about we've discovered that people rely too heavily on the fact they've got a certificate. And they do a lot of, there's something now called a vulnerability assessment and critical control point analysis, which matches the hazard. Um, analysis and critical control point that you have for food safety. And this is meant to sort of be an analysis that you have to do. You have to do it in the UK now, and I think it's become more widespread in the US, where you do a risk analysis of your particular items coming in. The trouble is a lot of them end the risk analysis by saying, oh, well, we've got a certificate. If you're a suspicious-minding forensic accountant, you're going to say, can I have a look at that right. certificate? because um, it's not that difficult to forge a certificate. Um, and some of what we're finding is that, you know, there is forgeries. There are other things associated. So one of the interesting things around food crime is the fact that it may well be linked to forgery, smuggling, embezzlement, um, and other, other straightforward financial crimes. So, what we're basically saying is to people, well, if you can protect yourself against food fraud, you're probably going to protect yourself against other frauds from employees and suppliers and others. One of the worrying things is, is just how little counter-fraud or management controls companies have around this area. You know, they're not even sure how they're going to investigate it. And they, so we've done a lot of advice around... Um, which is sometimes it's very basic, you know, do you have a policy in place for a fraud? Do you know how to investigate it? Do you check your certificates? Um, do you have that awareness? Because 
education, I've been told, well, we don't need that many controls because our employees have been working for us for, you know, we keep the same employees. They've been working for us for a long time. Again, your suspicious-minded forensic accountant will go in and say, you know that most frauds are committed by people who've been in the company for right, a very right. long time. Yeah. Um, you don't want to distrust your employees or your people who you might work with for years and you may be friends. But in fact, there's many tragic cases of smaller companies in particular being defrauded right. yeah, by people they trust. So it's about having those systems in place that protect everybody. You know, having the checks and balances, and some of them may be very simple about putting mass balances in place, about checking this, and about due diligence. The problem is, of course, a lot of the industry is made up of small, medium-sized enterprises. They don't always have the resources to do that. Due diligence, they've got enough keeping up with the due diligence requirements of the major companies they're working with. So our conclusion is when we were doing another side of the study, we were doing to calculate the economic cost of food crime was to protections that were in place. And in fact, a report by colleagues at the University of Lincoln came out at the same time as ours yesterday, um, looking at what's already in place and what might be learned from other industries. It's a very interesting area. It's also an interesting side of accounting. We forget we've got this side of accounting, which is also about prevention and about protecting designing good systems of control and um one thing i find interesting about the food fraud arena is it brings to light you know what makes good controls in any industry and what makes good controls if you're a small medium-sized enterprise mm. you know it's one you know my university the university of portsmouth is actually one of our specialities is forensics in a number of different areas and in our forensic accounting, I sometimes just simply use the food fraud for that purpose to tell people about, well, first of all, following the money, right. and secondly, um, putting good anti-fraud, counter-fraud controls in place. Yeah, that sort of gets to my sort of like wrap-up, big picture question, and yeah. and we're, we're talking about you know you. You're, talking a great deal about food fraud and the stresses in uh, on that and <clears throat> conflicts going on and in, in disruptions in the food chain and, and you have climate change as well. So I, I guess the big picture question is, you know, what role do you see accounting playing as these all these stresses sort of hit the agricultural, uh, the food industry at the same time? What What role does accounting play in that? Partly, it's trying to break through what we've always, really always done and start, if you like, putting together some what-if analysis. What if we changed the way we were doing things so that we were less reliant on fuel? What would the implications be? In other words, we need to do a bit more blue-sky thinking, but also crunching those numbers to say, well, actually, this is just a suspicion and I'm working on it at the moment is actually if we did less would we actually make more profit if we distributed the food more fairly so in other words if we're not so tied up with having this pure bound system that offers a huge amount of choice and that incidentally creates a huge amount of waste 
And again, that's an area we don't really have time now, but you know, at the moment looking at how do you cost what's the cost of waste in the system. I think if we do those bigger picture analyses and say, well, if we, for example, ate less but ate better, would that actually be profitable for the system all around? Put it in terms, you know, our, we've built a huge amount of crust into our system. Yeah, I, I mentioned some of the fuel things, but you know, just the packaging and the fact we want to want an assortment of foods. Um, we want over and above the basic nutrition. We've built a lot of cost into that system. So can we as accountants do some what-if analysis? So well, what if we did less? What if we did things that were not so harmful for the climate? What if we did things that increased biodiversity, for example? What if we simply cut down the amount of waste in the system? What are the implications of people buying less through the system? Because one of the sad facts, particularly in developed countries, is that we have this hugely expensive system, and then somewhere it's estimated between 30 and 60% of the food gets thrown away before it gets eaten. If you think about it, it's somewhat ridiculous, isn't it? So can we work out a system where there's less waste, fairer distribution, but you can still have affordable food, and in fact, the people involved still make a profit? That's a really big calculation. Um, the moment I'm not even quite sure how you'll go about doing it, but I think that's where accounting could go. I think that's where accounting research could go, and that would be things very interesting. And what would be more interesting to know would be if any, but even companies that are listening and are already doing those types of calculations. Yeah. Great. Those are my questions. I really appreciate you taking the time. This has been a very interesting conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for inviting me. It has been a very interesting conversation. Thank you.